Hi, this is Liz Tinkham, and welcome to Third Act, a podcast about people embracing the third act of their lives with a new sense of purpose and direction. The third act begins when your script ends, but your show's not finished. Hello, 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 and welcome to Third Act. On today's episode, I am so thrilled to have our first public official, Shelly Brindle, who is the mayor of Westfield, New Jersey. Shelly grew up in an all-female household, playing sports, doing well in school, and eventually going to the University of Virginia, where she became a member of the football team. Yeah, that's right, but you're going to have to listen to the episode to find out more. She parlayed an early start in TV ad sales to the C-suite of HBO, eventually becoming the executive VP of all domestic network distribution and marketing. When she was 50, she jumped off a cliff, so to speak, retired, and didn't know what else she was going to do. But that didn't last long. She soon noticed that the town around her was losing its edge and smacked of complacency. So she threw her name into the hat to be on the town council, only to end up as the mayor. And oh boy, does she have a great story to tell about what it's like to spend your third act serving the public as mayor of Westfield, New Jersey. Madam Mayor, welcome to Third Act. Is that the right title for you? Oh, you know, Shelly's always good, but uh, Matt, you can always start with Madam Mayor. Madam Mayor Brindle. I've never addressed a mayor, so thank you for honoring us with your presence. Um, So a couple things. You know, when I first originally conceived of this podcast and I was thinking about what do people do in their third acts, I thought it'd be great to get somebody who's uh, daring and courageous enough to go into public service. So here you are. Thank you. And secondly, you're my sixth guest from New Jersey. So there must be something in the water. Ah! No pressure. That's incredible. Yeah, no pressure. Absolutely. So like I said, you are the mayor of Westfield, New Jersey. But if I back up a bit, you're not originally from New Jersey. You're from Virginia. So and you went to the University of Virginia. So what were you doing there? And what how did you end up graduating from UVA? And what did you want to do with that degree? Yeah. Okay. A little backstory on how I ended up in Virginia, because it plays into my life later on. But I I grew up in a uh, military family. My dad was an Air Force pilot, and we uh, moved, I had two older sisters, and we moved all around when I was little. We were living in Las Vegas. My dad was stationed at Dallas Air Force Base when he was in Vietnam. And he was a fighter pilot in Vietnam. And on his last tour of duty before he was to come home for Thanksgiving, he was shot down and killed over North Vietnam when I was six years old. So the Air Force uh, gave my mom one move. And we went and looked at Colorado Springs and Pensacola, Florida, and ended up in Yorktown, Virginia, because there was a lot of military bases in the Hampton Roads area. And we had the, you know, the medical benefits and so forth. So my mom picked us up and moved us to a really little town called Grafton, Virginia, where, you know, she didn't know a soul. She had never worked a day. She got married right after he graduated from the Naval Academy, so she had been an officer's wife. And so she just had to figure out how she was going to reinvent her life. And I do believe watching my mom go through that struggle with such resilience and grace, I think definitely was a bit of an inspiration for my sisters and me. But she went on to become the, uh, ultimately through volunteer service, she ended up becoming the uh, Meals on Wheels coordinator for the Agency on Aging. And so it kind of instilled a lifetime in service. But through that process, when we didn't have a lot of money, we discovered that my dad had grown up in Roanoke, Virginia, and had been a taxpayer. And there was a thing called the World War II Orphans Act. And found out that if we went to a state university in Virginia, our tuition would be paid for by the state. 
Nice. So, yes, which was like we won the lottery when my sister was <laughs> a senior in high school and found that out. So that's, uh, and we are lucky to live in a state with great state institutions. And so, yeah, so that's how I ended up there. What were you going to major in and what were you going to do with it? Well, I think, does anybody, like, you know, when you go into college, I, I, sorry, I didn't have any idea what I was going to do. And it became kind of a process of elimination. I thought I wanted to be in the business school. Quite frankly, I hated accounting and finance. And so not really, you know, wasn't a great fit for me. So I was at the time what they called a rhetoric and communications major. And I minored in history. I really a typical liberal arts major. Graduate, what do you do with that? Well, I, you know, um, uh, I, I, I'm very chatty and outgoing, and I kind of you know, was interested in the media business. So I picked up with my college roommate, saved $500 in cash, and moved to Atlanta and slept on an air mattress. And at the time, went through the yellow pages and found a job. <laughs> as it's pretty much, I, I, that's how you did it back then, right? I, the yes, exactly. Yeah, you're the yellow pages. Yeah, through the yellow pages, and I landed a job making no money as a glorified secretary, really, for a, a television ad sales firm. And that was my very first job out of college. Oh, my gosh. Well, one more college story. Like last season, I interviewed Chris Peterson, who's the former head coach of the University of Washington. And he told me remarkably that he had 10 women affiliated with his coaching staff and the football program, oh. which was really impressive. But you were a part of the UVA football team back in the 80s. So what was that all about? And what did that teach you? Yeah, that was kind of a crazy thing. So my first year of college, I played a lot of sports in high school. My first year of college, my RA, her roommate actually was a manager for the football team. And she said she was on a scholarship for that. I was like, oh, that sounds pretty cool. And so Virginia had Virginia had lots of tra- traditions. One of the traditions they had was a losing football team. They hadn't had a, they, they had and they and they prided themselves on that. You know, I mean, you'd wear you'd wear guys wear ties and dresses to the games. They drink themselves silly, and you know that was kind of the tradition of the school. But they had brought in a new coaching staff from the Naval Academy to turn around the program. And so when she told me that she was a manager, I said, oh, "Well, I want to go try." Well, I went and interviewed with the new staff and the coach from the Naval Academy said they didn't want any women on the field. They didn't need that distraction. So I'm like, okay. And I'd gone with my roommate. And so we kind of just forgot about it and went and moved on. Well, because Virginia had been so terrible, they couldn't get anybody else to do the job. So they called us back and asked us if we'd reconsider. So of course we did. So we did, and, and I was the uh, offense. I worked as the offensive coordinator, and what was great is we got a front row seat at the turnaround of that program. And by the time I was a junior in college, they went to the, the Peach Bowl. They beat Purdue in the Peach Bowl, and they uh, were ranked like number fifteen in the country. And uh, that was pretty cool. And you did not get kicked off at that point. Did not get kicked. Kept us exactly, and it was kind of funny. I used to run the football during practices. They'd have me on game film, and the coach was like, "Who is that?" Kind of thing. But <laughs> so, what did you learn from that? I'm just, I love that story because I love college football, and I love that Chris had people, women associate. I didn't believe him at first, and then he named them all by name and position. I was like, "That's incredible!" But what'd you learn? It is pretty cool, too, when you see, like, now with, like, the umpires and refs and so forth, the women on the field, it's fantastic. You know what? I learned a lot. Like, you know, it's funny. I realized, you know, I was often the only, you know, we're the only women in the room. We actually end up becoming very close to the coaches. And you just learned a lot about, like, discipline and just really how what they did. 
to turn that program around. And it really was about, you know, creating this culture of accountability and expectation of excellence. And that was kind of fun. And then and the nicest surprise is my last semester of college, I'm in a class, and I didn't really hang out with the football players, but I knew them all, obviously, and one of the football players, who I thought was one of the nicer guys on the team, sat next to me in this class because I knew him. And long story short, he's now my husband. So uh, uh, I, <laughs> another, another benefit. benefit. So you go to Atlanta, you're sleeping on the floor, you're dialing for dollars and yellow pages, you end up in TV ad sales. But you ultimately want to end up in New York and you go to HBO, but there's some stamp self-addressed envelopes involved. <laughs> yeah, it's, I hate to even tell the story because it sounds so dated. <laughs> I think it's hilarious. <laughs> so I was working pretty much as a glorified assistant and there's this other woman that did too. And then I left, I went to go, oh, this is kind of funny. I went and go work. I got a job at Time Inc. I left the sales assistant job. And I got a job at Time Inc. But it was, what was you know, Time Inc. doesn't even exist today, but it was the most unglorious job in the world. I was in the newsstand sales arm of Time Inc. And every time you go to a grocery store and you see People Magazine at the checkout, that would have been someone like me hanging up at that rack and putting magazines at the checkout for people to buy. And but you, it was a great lesson in humility. And it was it really, I think, really prepared me for anything to come, quite frankly, with a lot of gratitude for everything that came forward. But one of the women I met coincidentally at my old job was then working for, had moved back to New York where she was from and was working for Sports Illustrated. So I said, wow, she was telling me about all these job listings that they posted internally because there was no internet at the time. So, you know, they'd pass, they'd pass around the internal job listings. So I said, if I send you a bunch of self-addressed stamp envelopes, would you send me those job listings every two weeks when they came out? And she did. And that's where I saw the job. And HBO was owned by Time Inc. at the time. So that's when I saw the jobs at HBO. And I applied. And next thing you know, I was trying to get to New York, but there was a sales job open in Philadelphia. So I ended up, I was like, okay, it's not New York, but it's close enough. And then how did your career at HBO evolve? What were some of the highlights? That's really funny. There's a couple of very specific highlights, I think. So, you know, I started in, obviously, in Philly on the sales side. And then... I don't know, I was just kind of outgrew that job very quickly. And you start learning through experience the things that you like to do and the things that you're good at. I know better than to ask a 21-year-old out of college what it is they want to do because you realize it's hard to articulate that probably until you're about 30 and you've had some experience. And you could say, who knew I was good at this? And that's kind of what happened to me. And it became evident I was very good at just really focusing on the bottom line and identifying the things that we need to do to resolve that. And I didn't have much patience for the the fluffy stuff that didn't really have a material impact. So I developed that reputation as someone who could really get be focused and deliver. So they asked me to come to New York to help them roll uh, on, on the marketing side to roll out this kind of new work with our cable distributors to work out like at what the time was new products with HBO was when we went from one channel to seven channels before everything was even, you know, online and so forth. So I started, so I did, I really relocated to New York and that was a very pivotal thing. And I learned a lot in this. And it's so funny because I was so young, but my manager there, her name is Lisa. She had come from uh, the uh, product. She was a product manager at, at Jell-O. And so I brought kind of the knowledge of the cable and sales experience. She brought really true packaged goods experience. And we made a great team. But more importantly than that, what Lisa taught me, and she was a young manager, 
she included me in every single meeting that she had with, yes, and with senior leaders, I was oftentimes the most junior person in the room. And I remember thinking how that made me feel. And it made me feel like I would do anything to make Lisa look good. Because she, you know, she had like put so much confidence in me, it made me want to over deliver for her. And she ended up leaving to go to a job in DC. And I was a young, I was like kind of young manager, like I normally by their standards wasn't, you know, tenured enough, if you will, to move into this director's role. But because Lisa had just, you know, I was always in the room. While they were interviewing for this director's job with other people, I was just really busy. I was too busy doing the job. And I'll never forget when the the head of the department said, you know what, I don't know how I can tell you this isn't yours. And so that's how I became a very young director at HBO. And I really attribute that all to Lisa. Do you still keep in touch with her at all? Yeah, funny enough, I didn't. But she and I ran into each other. She she was in New York and, and she came to HBO not long before I left. And I actually had the opportunity to tell her how much she influenced me, not only you know, at what I did, but as a leader. And yeah. and I remember to contrast that with after then, you know, through a few iterations of bosses and so forth, I had this boss, another boss that was the opposite of Lisa. I, I don't know if he was threatened by me, but he refused to put me in the room. He refused to share information with me. And I remember thinking, I've I, I got to be honest with you, I acted like a jerk. And I remember thinking, I'm the same person who I was, you know, with Lisa, and I was a superstar, and now, I, and and I just took myself personally out of it and looked at it as an objective person running a company. What was the environment that happened when I was doing everything I could to go above and beyond, and what was the environment that existed when I was doing as little as possible? And it all came down to how they made me feel, and that has been a really big factor in my leadership philosophy going forward. It's about How do you get the, you know, if you just look at from a pure employee productivity standpoint, what's the environment you want to create to do that? That's exactly my philosophy as well. It's like, how do I create the environment that my employees can perform the best? Lisa, uh, you know, definitely demonstrated sort of true stewardship, which I think is pretty rare because most people do want to sort of hold on to things. So it's lucky you found her early. I had a lot of good early mentors as well. All right. So you said to me when we were prepping that you always felt like an accidental executive. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. What does that mean? Um, you know, because if you had asked me, you know, that 21 year old self about what I wanted to do, if you ever told me, oh, I want to be, you know, in the C-suite of a media company, it would never be. First of all, I don't think it occurred to me that I was even capable of that. I mean, it just wasn't even in my realm of thinking of something that I aspired to. I always thought I was going to like open a flower shop or something. Um, <laughs> I just, I just like, I don't know. And it just never really occurred to me. And, but as a result, because I always thought there were these other more entrepreneurial things that I wanted to do. It was, it, I almost, it made me very brave in my corporate job because I never felt like this was where I wanted to be in the first place. And that bravery in terms of really always telling it like it is and, and being the one to come up with the crazy out of the box ideas that we should be trying Ultimately, in a a perverse way, my me not being afraid to take risks is ultimately because I wasn't worried about you know self preservation is is ultimately what led me to be successful. Oh, it's great. So, how does your uh, career at HBO kind of 
finish? So, well, I had done, like, you know, I, I was one of those people that they put me in whatever, you know, this needs to be fixed or that needs to be fixed. And I'd come and I'd, I'd get the right people running it. And then I'd be like, okay, well, my work is done here, right? Like, I wasn't ever really interested in just being the person to make, to make the trains run on time. I was always about how can we fix something and then, get, and then hand it over to the people that can just continue to run it. So at some point, I just thought after we launched our HBO Go, which was our first transformation from the linear to the digital online streaming world, and then the next, right? And that was like very like a big deal. And that was incredibly rewarding and, you know, like overcome, you know, this challenge. And then, uh, you know, you think about now what? Like, what is left to do? And I'll quite candidly, my, um, I had turned 50, my contract was up. They gave me a, a great new four-year contract with a promotion and the whole bit. But I, I was thinking it in terms of, okay, what is next in terms of what's the next thing I can build or create? And I just, because Time Warner was in transition, I knew they were probably setting themselves up for sale, which they ultimately did. I just was worried that the challenge wasn't going to be there for me. And I was going to be all one of those people that I always tried to like, look, you know, look at like punching the clock executive that's just happy to be living the sweet life. And I, I just, I wish I could, I wish I could have been that person. It would have made me and my family a lot easier, but I just couldn't. I, I used to tell the people who work for me, if, if I'm ever headed towards the pasture, you have to tell me before I get there because I don't want to be here in the pasture. I want to take myself that's, out. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah, I was afraid I was going to be in the pasture. And I felt like I needed another chapter. I, this, I, I, And this is weird, too. I kept envisioning my eulogy. As I was trying to convince, I was trying to convince myself to sign this contract, right? Like, who walks away from that? And I, But I kept imagining my eulogy. And I'm like, okay, well, if I die tomorrow... My CEO would be delivering the eulogy. It'd be surrounded by HBO employees. And I just was not, that's not how I wanted to be remembered. And, and I was worried if the longer I stayed, it would, the next chapter would be harder to create. So you jumped off the cliff and you left. I, I did. I did. And now at this point, tell us about your relationship with the town of Westfield, New Jersey. At that point, so, you know, I live in New Jersey, obviously. I was, mm-hmm. had a horrible commute in the city every day. I had three kids at home. And my life, like so many of the commuting moms and dads, quite frankly, I knew my relationship was more with New York City than it was with my community. My weekends were spent shuttling my kids to activities and so forth. But, you know, my ability to be engaged was somewhat li- limited just because of my time constraints and, and my capacity. So, you know, I moved here like a lot of people. We have this beautiful downtown. We have great schools. But my engagement was really in New York. And when I left HBO, it enabled me to engage in my community in a way that I'd never been able to. And I just started paying attention to how things were run. I was was speaking to companies and doing some keynotes about creating cultures of growth and transformation. And then I remember sitting in our beautiful downtown who had been very badly hurt by the transition to online shopping because we had this very, you know, Main Street downtowns everywhere. Right. Yeah. And, and I started, I wanted to see what the plan was for fixing it. Like, what are we doing about it? Where are we going to go? Because it also creates opportunities for innovation, right, when you have challenges like that. You guys had like storefronts closing, that type of thing. Absolutely. And we had been, lot, we have lots of big national chain stores in Westfield because we are that kind of draw. 
you know, and that we are just living high on the hog with all of that. And then clearly they started closing. And then with the financial crisis was the tipping point for online shopping. And then a lot of them left and there was no plan. And that's when I said, okay, well, maybe the, you know, I speak about growth and innovation and maybe the best place to use my skill set is right in my own hometown. Yeah. And then how did President Obama inspire you? I remember thinking um, one of his last speeches, I think it was raining. And I, I remember a lot of parents that left a mark on a lot of people. And it said, if you want to make a difference, you know, pick up a clipboard, get some signatures and run for office. And that really and resonated with me. And certainly after the last of the 2016 election, which took me, obviously, like many of us, a bit by surprise, I'm looking at a downtown that I felt was suffering And I felt like, you know, you cannot rely on other people to do the work you don't want to do. And I picked up a clipboard and said I was going to run for town council. And I I said, I'll just get a seat at the table. You know, I just want to see what's going on. I recruited a friend who's a big finance executive at a private equity firm, another woman, a female friend of mine, to run to. So two of us were going to run for council. We picked up our clipboard. We got our signatures two weeks before we were submitting our signatures to get on the ballot, and there was a slate with a guy that was running for mayor, and he, two weeks before, he, I find out he is dropping out of the race for personal reasons, and I was out of town, and there was a meeting that was had. I sent my high school senior daughter to represent my interests, and apparently at the end of the meeting, they look at my daughter, and they said, do you think you could convince your mom to run for mayor? And what does your daughter say? She's like, well, let me call her, you know. So she calls me the next morning and she tells me about like her conversation. I'm like, oh my God, I, like I let it not what I was signing up for. And then, you know, she said, you know, mom, you've always talked about just trying to make a difference and you can't think about winning. You just have to think about making a difference and just by running, you're going to make a difference. And I said, shut up. <laughs> like, who taught you that? <laughs> Um, and, you know, and honestly, what do you say to that, right? I mean, you're trying to set an example, particularly for all these young girls and women. And honestly, I just said, okay, and naively said, how hard can it be? And it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. You know that adage that, you know, if you knew how hard something would be, you never would have done it, but so be glad you didn't. I did, honestly, I was like, like really, how hard could it be? It's at 31,000 people in my town. It's like, you know, it's a volunteer job. Honestly, how hard could it be? And I was naive to how the town was run, really, to the old boy politics that were taken on. And, and you know, not to get partisan, but it was a very Republican-run town. It was a, Our government was nine Republicans, zero Democrats. Union County is, like, some large percentage the Democratic. Yes, So is absolutely. Westfield the Republican holdout within yes. Union County? Okay. Yes. West, there's, like, a two few smaller towns. West, Westfield is not only the Republican bastion and has been historically the Republican bastion in Union County. All of the big state GOP leaders live in Westfield. And I didn't know any of this. I, I knew that our state senator, my, the minority leader of the state, the minority leader of our assembly lived here, but I didn't know like Governor Chris Christie's top five people lived here. I didn't know this until I was already in it. And the result was that they were very, you know, it, they couldn't lose this election because it wasn't a good look for them. So they spent lots of PAC money on this little mayor's race against me. That's unbelievable. But you prevailed. I did prevailed by 50 high school kids. 
that we recruited and that came started out in the AP government class and then they recruited all their friends and they uh, were incredible. They went door to door. They text, they did a whole texting campaign to get people to register to vote. And we had the highest voter turnout in the state and we had the highest mail-in ballots in the state. Oh, that is so fun. So now you're mayor. If I'm a listener and I want to think about running for office, as you reflect on that, is there any advice or a couple questions you'd say you might want to ask these two things before you step into it? Uh, yeah. Uh, yes, I've actually advised some women in particular who are thinking about running profits. Uh, first of all, um, these are all things that I didn't do, <laughs> but they actually all worked out for me. Um, find out, first of all, how your government, what, what kind of government your town actually employs. I know that sounds really silly, but like in uh, New Jersey, we have like 550 municipalities and they each have a different form of government. Many of them do. And so, for example, after I was elected, I went to this conference like two weeks later and people are asking me if I was a strong mayor or a weak mayor and I'm like well I'm a strong mayor of course yeah, <laughs> find of out. course it's actually it's actually a form of government and ah. um and yes and thank goodness I'm a strong mayor because the mayor has has a lot of power and influence in my town I actually think we have one of the strongest mayor positions governments in the state but that's important to know because you need to figure out like it depends on what you want to do and what you want your level of influence to be. Just So just make sure. So some people might think they could be mayor and have all this influence only to get and get to become mayor and realize they actually don't have as much influence as they might think. So I just think you want to find out about how your, you know, how your government is run, what the dynamics are, but be very clear on like what it is you want to do. Like I was very clear about like what I wanted to do. If our town was like running great and I didn't see those issues, I never would have run for office. I only ran because I had a very clear vision uh, of what what I thought we needed to be doing. And that was really, really important. And then, you know, you just have to be prepared. It's very, I also learned it is very, very hard to take on an incumbent. I was running against a three-term incumbent. And it's you need um, a lot of, uh, you need a network. You need a lot of support. It's pretty hard, but it's doable. And But I think it's the most important thing is just a very clear articulation of what the value is and the vision you have to bring to your community. Okay. How was it seeing your name on a signs all over town? Was that? That was, that was kind of weird. I mean, it was like, it was almost embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> was it Brindle or Shelly Brindle? Or it what was, was it? Yeah. Yeah. Brindle for mayor. And um, yeah, it was funny. And it was, I will tell you though, it was really the support I got. It was very validating. I'm almost funny. And I felt like I was having, I'm not like a, like, you know, a reflection on my life during this campaign because I wasn't really well known in my community, right? For the reasons I mentioned earlier, but the people that came out for me initially, my whole HBO family and all my clients, they were the ones that were donating money. I had like our security guards at the HBO building donating money saying, it was like, I can finally do something for you. I mostly, it was, it like made me cry thinking about it. And so they're the ones that sustained me, honestly, through the beginning of the campaign while I was able to really engage with the community. And then by the time the fall came around and my executive network in New York, all these women leaders were great. But by the time the fall came around, it was, I was going to houses like three times a day, meeting with people in their kitchens and just talking about it. And so that, yeah, very grass, it was a very, very, very much grassroots campaign. So you've been mayor now for how long? Three and a half years. I'm up for election this year. What's been the most surprising thing about being the mayor of a town in, in New Jersey or just being mayor in general? 
Um, well, well, be, uh, being mayor of New Jersey is in and of itself. <laughs> and it's because, uh, New Jersey, you know, it's probably like Illinois. I mean, it's, uh, it's kind of crazy some of the things that, uh, you know, the po- political landscape. I, w- I, I think I was, un- I, I, even though I was prepared to be says, oh, you're, you know, you're going from like the media, private sector to municipal, public sector. And, oh, my gosh. And it was just a bit of a level setting in terms of, you know, all these things that you want to accomplish. You realize you have to build the, the foundation first before you can, you have to build the things before you can do the big things. So that was representative of like, oh, gosh. But so, and I will say, like, you don't have a lot of resources, but the biggest resources you do have are the members of your community. And like anything, and I happen to live in a very highly educated community, and we have incredible talent and resource in our town, and they've, 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 and all people need to do is be asked, right? And so I've tried to tap into the incredible talent in our community to bring those benefits to bear on behalf of progress in our town. And that has been incredibly rewarding to see how many people have come out and volunteered the time and talents of people who are really tops in their field has been really spectacular. But someone asked me, like, you know, what I was, like, had been most proud of. And there's, like, a lot of, like, you know, big things I could talk about, about, like, you know, we're moving forward on this really incredible vision for our downtown and, and investment and so forth. But honestly, the things that have really caught me by surprise at how sometimes you think, okay, this is why I'm doing it. For example, we raised the pride flag in our town for the first time after I was elected. That had never been done. I had parents coming up to me with kids who are now in their 20s who felt like they had never belonged here. And they were just tears streaming down their face like, wow, I feel like I feel like they can come home. We have this incredible African-American community in Westfield. We have Paul Langston lived here. Paul Robeson lived here. Like we have this, um, I'm sorry, I mean, Langston Hughes, Paul Robeson. We have this incredibly dynamic African-American history in Westfield that has never really been celebrated. So um, my daughter, the same one that got me into this, is a history major, digital, you know, humanities minor. And so she worked with our MLK Association to create this African-American historical walking tour, digital walking tour in uh-huh. our town. Oh, how um, cool. It was really cool with all these landmarks, whether it's slave trading or the Langston Hughes place or Paul, you know, m- memorials. And um, so we kicked it off with this association and their gratitude for the public acknowledgement of their contributions to our community that had never really been done in a meaningful way really was so profound for me. Those types of moments are the ones that really, I think I will be most memorable for me. How is our country's polarization, how does that impact you at a local level, if at all? I assume it does. Uh. Oh, it's uh, the social media. It's brutal. It's really, it's really brutal. I just, you just have to keep moving forward. Honestly, I got out of, you know, there's all these, every community has these various Facebook groups and so forth, you know, and they just devolve into these, unfortunately, spirals of negativity almost. So I just try to look for other ways to communicate with the public. I'm very proactive on social media myself and I'm sending out email you know, newsletters weekly, and I, I, I try to meet people as much as possible in person. Uh, you just have to, um, oh, you, and, and you can't, I don't read any of those things because it can divert you from, like, you know, you never, if you're very clear on what you want to do, those comments can distract you and make you second guess things. And they're not, and they're not necessarily grounded in any real facts. 
So, yeah, it's brutal. And you've got to have a really strong mindset. Good thing you were the football assistant football coach. I'm, I'm telling you, I think being in the re- arena, quite frankly, with men at football and then being the only woman in the C-suite at HBO, I think it prepared me for these things. And uh, it really is. So it's unfortunate, but you, you have these moments. I think but most of my feedback comes from these honestly casual interactions that I have when I meet people in town or on the street. And that's where I find the most meaningful interactions happen. That's where I get the real story not what these people are doing on social media. So what's next? Are you going to run again? I am. I announced I'm running for re-election. If you had told me four years ago I was going to do this again, I'd be like, no, because I thought, you know, I've got, we're going to get all this accomplished before I'm done. But we are on the cusp of some really exciting things in Westfield, like transformational things. And quite honestly, post-COVID has been horrible, but I also think it's created opportunities for innovation. And so I'm so excited about a lot of these things that are about to unfold. I feel an obligation to stay for the next four years to make sure that I get to see them through. Okay. So after the two-term Mayor Brindall, should Governor Murphy, should he be worried? Are you coming after him? Oh, my God. You know, I have to say, I'm doing it in spite of the politics, not because of the politics. And so I, I don't know. I just, I don't know what my, I just, you know what, it's kind of similar to my career. Honestly, I never looked that far ahead. And it's not just some politicians saying that. I didn't plan my own career that way. I just, it was always about what impact can I make at this point in time? And then we'll just see where that leads. That's how I navigated my entire HBO career. And it's kind of what I'm doing now. I, I'll be honest with you. I, I don't know what's next for me. I just know that I hope enough people will see what I'm able to do and what I'm good at, that when this thing runs out, some will say, hey, I have an opportunity for you over here. I'm just just kind of rolling with that. I'm sure they will. So I almost named this podcast, I'm Not Done Yet, because I feel like I'm not done yet. So what aren't you done with yet? My husband always wishes I'd be done, but I'm never going to be done. And some tells me, Liz, you're never going to be done either. Nope. Uh Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Yeah, that's why I had to do this to find more to do. Right. And and I and so I'm the same way. I just I just find I think, you know, early on, you all have this vision of what retirement's going to be. I just no, my retirement is not going to be just, you know, sitting at the beach and, and playing tennis. That might be a, a small part of it. But I just feel like I've got to be making a difference for life. Life is going too fast for me. And I feel like I haven't done enough. And I just feel like I'm always going to be making it, trying to make a difference somehow, some way. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you, Shelly, for coming on the podcast. We will include the reference, at least the link to your uh, Westfield's, um, your mayoral site and the donation and everything else. Where else can we find you online? You're on LinkedIn, right? I'm on LinkedIn. And you can, if you want to keep up what's going on in Westfield, you can follow Mayor Brindle on Facebook and Mayor Brindle on Instagram. And I'm uh, at SW Brindle on Twitter. Okay, we'll include all that in the show notes. So Shelly, thanks so much. Yeah, well, thank you, Liz. Thanks for joining me today to listen to the Third Act Podcast. You can find show notes, guest bios, and more at thirdactpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham. I'll be back next week with another guest who's found new meaning and fulfillment in the third act of their life.